Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. It is good to be back with you this morning. I know Aaron would say the same thing. No, we did not go on vacation together. As you might have thought, we did plan our trips separately and wound up about 10 minutes apart from each other on the beach, but we did not go uh, together. He did invite me out to dinner one night, but I did not take him up on that offer. Uh, And so we did not see each other, but it is good to be back. I was with you last week. I watched the service or at least the vast majority of it. I got started with it just a little bit late, Uh, but I watched the service and I appreciate Jake filling in. Uh, It is good to have the technology that we have. It's been a huge blessing the past year plus for us to be able to do that. And we hope to continue to do that. But there is nothing like being in person in a corporate gathering of worship. And so now that many of us have the vaccine and now that the numbers are going down, we certainly want to invite those who might be watching us right now to come join us in person and gather with the local body of believers. Now, I do want to correct one thing that Jake said last week. This is the danger for them of me watching while I'm gone. Jake said to you that one of the two ways to ensure a good sermon was to let you out early. And then he said, but I'm not going to do that. And then he did. He let you out five minutes early. I was watching the clock. I'm not complaining about that because I went to the beach as soon as the service was over with. But I just wanted to let you know that I have no intention of doing that this morning, as you probably are well aware. Well, let's look back at Colossians chapter 1. We're going to finish the first chapter this morning in this wonderful New Testament letter, probably my favorite of all of the epistles in the New Testament. My title is very simple this morning. It is this, Christian Ministry. Now, what comes to mind when you hear that term, Christian Ministry? Obviously, the Christian part is easy enough to describe. That is, we are doing some sort of ministry in the name of Christ. But when you think of Christian ministry, you might immediately begin thinking about a particular ministry, a prison ministry, a benevolence ministry, and on and on the list could go. Or perhaps you begin thinking about ministers, people like me. You say, well, Christian ministry is done by Christian ministers, and so you begin to think of the ministers in this church or some other local church, what we sometimes call full-time Christian ministry, those like me who have this as their vocation and are paid to do what we do. And the implication then, however, is somewhat negative, that if we pay them to do full-time Christian ministry, then it is not what the rest of us are called to do. So I want you to understand that is not the way I'm using the term this morning. I would never preach a sermon that is knowingly only applicable to a handful of people in the audience. So when I talk about Christian ministry, I'm not talking about full-time Christian ministry or ministers. Christian ministry is to be for every Christian. Every Christian ought to be in Christian ministry. Now, this has been very difficult during COVID. Like a lot of other things during this pandemic, ministry has been difficult. It is hard to minister to people when you cannot physically be around them. 
And so we've struggled, even as you've struggled, throughout this pandemic and knowing how to minister to people and what to do and, and what not to do. But now that things are getting back to what we might call semi-normal, it is time for all of us to get back to Christian ministry. And we're going to look at Paul's words as he talks about his own ministry. And in seeing that, we are going to apply that to all of us. The Apostle Paul was unique in many ways as an apostle of Christ. But there are also many aspects of his life that were simply being a Christian. And so we dare not look at him and just say, yes, but that's Paul. Well, no, those are marks of what every Christian ought to be doing. So let's look at Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24, as we think about our own Christian ministry. And again, when I say our own, I'm not talking about the churches. I'm talking about yours and mine. Colossians 1 and verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Now, you may remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at verses 15 through 20. That is the hymn to Christ, where Paul is either writing a hymn or incorporating a hymn or taking a hymn and adapting it to his purposes. But it is this majestic hymn to Christ. And then last week, Jake looked at verses 21 through 23, and he talked about God's work of reconciling us to himself in Christ. That is, we were separated by sin. The universal uh, problem that all individuals have, that sin has separated us from God. And therefore, we need to be reconciled to him. And God in Christ has done just that. And that leads Paul in the very last phrase of verse 23 to say this, which I, Paul, became a minister. And then he takes from that phrase and he begins talking about his own ministry. And from his own ministry, I want to pull out some things that you and I ought to be, uh, ought to see in our own ministry. And the first thing is this, we ought to be willing to suffer. Not exactly the way to start a recruiting, is it? I mean, not exactly the way, about, way to go about getting volunteers for some sort of ministry. We might instead rather talk about the needs of other people. Don't you understand that the needs of people are vast and we have the answer to those needs and therefore we need to meet them. Or we might even talk about the perks of ministry, how it might make you feel and what a blessing you will get. Or if we're talking about missionaries, we might even go a little bit further and talk about all of the travel and the things that you'll get to see and enjoy along the way. But Paul doesn't bring any of that stuff up. He starts off by talking about the willingness to suffer and the assurance 
that that is going to be part of any Christian ministry. Now, notice his attitude toward this suffering in that first phrase. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings. We find that to be a very strange combination. How can rejoice and suffering go together? I'm sure you're aware of the tremendous amount of suffering that Paul faced in his life. Shipwrecked, beaten, and left for dead having to endure hunger and countless other maladies. But he knew all of this from the very beginning because it was on the Damascus Road when he was converted, that experience where Ananias is told to go and meet Saul at the time, and Ananias is a bit leery of doing that because he knows what Saul is doing. That is, he is hunting down Christians in order to persecute and even kill them. But God says to Ananias, assuring him that everything's going to be okay, he says this, For I will show him, that is referring to Paul, I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. In the book of Acts, we are told that the disciples went away rejoicing. There's that word again. That they went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the sake of Christ. Paul instructed Timothy to endure hardship as he is doing the work of an evangelist. And then Paul writes in Romans that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. On top of all of the physical sufferings that Paul endured, he faced difficulties in dealing with churches. In 2 Corinthians, he says, Besides these things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of the churches. Paul faced suffering from those who opposed Christianity from without. And Paul faced suffering from those who threatened to undermine Christianity from within. In fact, I've said this before, virtually every New Testament letter that Paul writes is designed in some manner to either deal with problems in a local church or to help ministers like Timothy to do the same things. And so there have always been problems in churches that ministry has to deal with. And Paul certainly was no exception. And yet he rejoices in the midst of that. But notice also the application of his sufferings. You may recall that when we began studying this book, I said that Paul had never been to the church in Colossae. He did not start it. He did not found it. He had never been to the city. As a result, in all likelihood, he personally knew none of the people in this church. And yet he says very clearly that he rejoices in the suffering on their behalf or for their sake. Paul has such a high view of the local church that he's willing to rejoice in his own suffering for the sake of a church that he doesn't even personally know. Suffering for believers in other places. Now even when we do suffer, we tend to think of the spiritual benefits that will accrue to us as a result. We think about what God is going to teach us and how we're going to grow and how even we're going to mature, as we'll see later in these particular verses. And all of that is fine. But that's not the angle Paul is looking at. He's saying, my sufferings in some manner are helping you. And he rejoices for that very reason. The gospel was advancing because of Paul's commitment. And the people in the Colossian church were were benefiting because of his own sufferings. So he doesn't bring this up to instigate a pity party. Now, that's a very difficult phrase in verse 24. 
In fact, it says in one of the commentaries I read that these words have caused bewilderment to generations of translators and commentators. And what I mean is that phrase where he says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. What in the world does he mean by that? Well, we're not exactly sure, but here's what we know it does not mean. Paul is not saying that there is something deficient in the sacrifice of Christ, especially as it pertains to our atonement. So that he is not saying, I am somehow participating in Christ's sacrifice of atonement for you. That would be against everything he says in this book. Remember, everything he's writing about here is to continue to show that Christ, as we sang about a moment ago, is all we need. Because Christ has done everything necessary for our salvation and our sanctification, there is no one who needs or even can add to that. So what he's saying here is not that he is participating in the atonement with Christ, but he is saying in some manner, it seems, that he is following what Christ did, that is Christ suffered, and now he is suffering on behalf of the kingdom of God and growing that kingdom through his suffering. And by the way, again, that's not unique for Paul. If the head is going to suffer, the body is going to suffer. We saw that analogy a couple of weeks ago. Christ is the head of the church, and we are the body. If the head is going to suffer, then we are going to suffer as well. Now, rejoicing in the midst of suffering is, of course, difficult to swallow. We do all we can to avoid suffering. In fact, we work hard all of our lives so that we can get to a place of comfort and security where hopefully we won't have to suffer. And when we are in physical pain, we want something to relieve that pain. We want some medicine to take the pain away. I've been to countless hospital rooms where the patient has that little button in their hand. And occasionally they will, they will look at me and they say, well, I'm trying not to use it. I, I don't want to get addicted to it. And I don't know if this is what I should say as a pastor, but I always say, I would use it as much as they would let me. I mean, they control how often you can do it, but, but that's there so that you don't feel the pain because we don't like to suffer. Uh, the sad thing is we carry this over into our spiritual lives. Why should we suffer for the cause of Christ if we don't have to? Why not let other people do the suffering for the sake of Christ while we live a comfortable life and others can pull the weight? After all, isn't God primarily concerned about our comfort? Now, I know we wouldn't say amen to that, but that is the way we think and often the way we live our lives. And those who think that, I'm not sure how they can read the Apostle Paul. He certainly did not think that God's primary concern in his life was his comfort. Or had he thought that, he would certainly have to admit that God had not done a very good job at bringing comfort to his life, at least when it comes to physical and even spiritual and emotional suffering because of the churches. No, Paul understood that God's primary concern was the advancement of the gospel, that God desires to see people saved and mature in their walk with him. And if, as a result of that, physical and emotional or spiritual suffering is, is necessary in order to achieve that goal, then Paul was willing to do that and rejoice in the midst of it. Again, I remind you that Paul is not writing this letter from his mountain cabin while on a riding sabbatical. He is not writing this at the beach. He is writing this in all likelihood in a dirty, infested Roman prison cell 
and he is saying, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings. Now, you and I will probably never be called upon to suffer as Paul did, but if we desire to be involved in Christian ministry, we need to understand that that is going to involve suffering. People are going to disappoint you. Things are not going to work out the way you want them to work out. And therefore, there is going to be suffering for the cause of Christ. And this suffering, if it is responded to positively or appropriately, is going to be used by God to mature us. And again, that's what we'll see here in this text. All right, so if we want to be involved in Christian ministry, and I, I'm really saying that the wrong way, it's not a matter of whether we desire or want to be in Christian ministry. If you're a Christian, you are called to be in Christian ministry. You are commanded to be in Christian ministry. And so you just need to know up front that you must be willing to suffer. Secondly, you must be willing to serve, verse 25. Now, that goes almost without saying. I mean, you would say, well, if we're going to be in Christian ministry, that is going to involve service, but I need to emphasize it anyway. Where do we see service in verse 25? It's that word minister. Paul says that I've been made a minister according to the will of God. That word for minister is the same word for deacon or the word servant. So Paul is clearly saying that he is a servant of God and a servant of the church. In fact, God gave him to the church as a servant to fulfill his word. Now, obviously, to be a servant of God takes commitment. It takes sacrifice. It takes a desire to follow Christ. It takes time, energy, and resources. And it also takes a love for Christ. In fact, I think we could say that without genuine love for Christ, we will not be a servant. I heard a preacher one time who, who I thought explained this very well. He said, if you're not in Christian service, if you're not serving Christ in some way, it is not that you have a commitment problem. It is not that you have a time problem. It is because you have a love problem. Because when we genuinely love Christ, we are going to express that love by serving him and his church. And that is what Paul is doing. I am continually amazed when I see families who serve one another in the worst of times. And some of you know that because you've been there or maybe you're there right now. That is men and women who take care of their parents or their grandparents. And they lovingly do all of these chores, many chores that would in normal times appear to be beneath us, something that we would not want to do. And yet we do those things with patience and with love because we want to serve the family members that we are serving. We lose sleep. We give up money. We take time off work. We forsake recreational activities to be by their side. And sometimes in families, this goes on for months, if not years. And yet it's done over and over again because of love. Shouldn't we do the same thing when it comes to our relationship with Christ? Shouldn't our love for him, which flows from his love for us, compel us to a continual service of commitment to him? We have the, we have the gospel, the, the true gospel. We are servants of the King of kings and Lord of lords. I picked on the Jehovah's Witnesses a few weeks ago, so let's switch it up this morning. We'll pick on the Mormons. They come knocking at your door. Young Mormon missionaries come knocking on your door, giving two years of their life to do that, and they do so with a false gospel. They don't have the truth, and yet they knock on your doors for two years, and then somebody else takes their place. We have the true gospel. 
aren't we also to be willing to serve in these manners and many others? Granted, our, our service will be in different capacities. We have different gifts, different abilities. God calls us to do different things, but we do have the ability to serve. We are called to serve, and our love for Christ should compel us to serve. We ought not to serve because of the benefits we get. There are benefits, but that's not the motive for service. We don't serve because of what we get out of it. We serve because what we've already been given. We've been given God's love. We've been given salvation, and therefore we serve. And what is the purpose of this service? We see this in the second half of verse 25. It gives us the purpose there. Look at it again. From God that was given to me for you so to make the word of God fully known. Paul says his purpose is that the knowledge of God might go out, that he proclaims the word of God. Now again, your particular calling and ministry might be different than mine, but the desire should be the same. That is, the love of God motivates us to proclaim the word of God. And that is why we still maintain the primacy of preaching and teaching. I realize that times change and cultures differ. I realize that there are other methods and other things that sometimes people appear to think are more important than the actual proclamation of the Word of God. But the New Testament says we are to proclaim the Word of God. That doesn't mean just as the way I'm doing it this morning, but it means in all of our lives that we teach and proclaim the Word of God because we want that Word to be fully known. That is the reason, that is the purpose for which we serve. So if we're involved in Christian ministry, again, I'm saying that wrong. Since we're involved in Christian ministry, we ought to be willing to suffer, we ought to be willing to serve, and then thirdly, we do not have the right to be selective. We cannot be selective in how we do this. Verses 26 through 28, you'll notice what it says there. Three times the word everyone is used. Three times Paul makes clear that there are no, uh, no, no one is exempt from this. Everyone is to hear the word of God. You see, the problem in Colossae, at least in part, was that they seem to have been, these false teachers, were emphasizing that uh, their teaching was reserved for the elite. That is, this is only for those who have spiritually reached the, the status that we are, the spiritually elite, some higher level of spirituality that was reserved for only a select group. Now, I'm going to assume that you're, you're common folk like me. We, we don't like when there's people above us. I mean, when we go to a ball game and we sit in our just regular seats, we don't like that there's people up there in the skyboxes who are in air conditioning and eating great food, and we're waiting in line for a $5 hot dog. That bothers us. We wish we were them. We don't like when we get on an airplane and we have to walk through first class knowing that once that plane takes off, we will not be welcomed in first class. We can't go back there. And when we're back there in coach, you know, opening our little bag of peanuts, if we have room to even do that, we know there's people in first class that have more leg room and are eating something way better than we are. So we don't like that we're not part of that group. I remember, and I probably told you this years ago, but I remember flying uh, to the Southern Baptist Convention many years ago, and it just so happened I had told my uh, cousin who was a pilot uh, what our route was gonna be, and so he was the co-pilot on this particular flight. And so he was able to bump Tracy and I up to first class. But on the way back from that trip, 
He was not the pilot. He was jump seating back home with us. But he, he said there to us in the airport uh, that there's no seats left on first class. So he was not going to be able to bump us up. And I remember saying to him, Randy, I cannot go back to coach. I mean, now that I've seen what's up there, I can't go back. And so we, we don't like having these levels that we're not able to participate in. And so the folks in Colossae were fighting this same battle spiritually. They felt inferior because the false teachers were touting themselves as some special group that only those who had reached their level could join. And Paul makes it very clear that no, the gospel's for everyone. It is to be proclaimed to all because this message is a message of salvation for all. And therefore, our ministry must be designed in this same manner. And both new churches and old churches sometimes forget this. And what I mean by that is this. Old churches like ours, we are an old church. Old churches like ours sometimes get comfortable with the kind of people that we already have. And therefore, we, ha we find it hard sometimes to reach out to people who are not like us. Or we find it difficult to welcome them when they do come. And so maybe we don't even intend it, but we're not receptive sometimes because we're comfortable with people like us. New churches, on the other hand, sometimes just blatantly say they're targeting a specific group. There are many new churches that are taking the, taking the marketing methods of the world and they're saying, we're going to target a specific group of people, a class of people, a, a, a specific age of people, and these are the people we're going after and our church is going to be designed for them. Now, that's perfectly fine in business. I mean, businesses try to determine who their core market is for their product and then they market to them. And so they market specifically on television shows that they know their market or, or their people watch. That's why you get those targeted Facebook ads. You know, when you, when you look something up and then go to Facebook an hour later and there's an ad for what you just looked up because they're targeting you and they know you just were interested in this. That's fine in business. It's a little bit creepy on Facebook, but it's fine in business. But it ought not to be the way the church works because the church is to be for everyone. We are to proclaim the ministry to all. In fact, look again at verse 27. In verse 26, I know I just said 27, but in verse 26, Paul says there's a mystery. Now, a mystery in the New Testament does not mean a puzzle that we have to solve. A mystery in the New Testament is something that had previously been hidden, but has now been revealed, revealed by divine revelation. And Paul says this mystery is Christ in you. So he tells us what the mystery is. It is Christ in you. Well, what does that mean? Well, generally, we take that phrase to refer to the truth that Christ comes to, uh, to abide in our hearts, to reside within us. It's why we say sometimes you need to invite Jesus into your heart. And while there might be some theological issues with, with saying it that way, it's really not a bad thing. I mean, it's just saying we, that we have a, a relationship with Christ. It is not an external religion where we simply follow rules and regulations. But I don't think that's necessarily what Paul's talking about here. Again, he's speaking to a largely Gentile church in Colossae, and Paul says that God has revealed the riches of his glory among you. So his primary point in this message of the gospel is this, that the message is not just for the Jews, it is also for the Gentiles. Remember, he's called the apostle to the Gentiles. So he is proclaiming a message of inclusion. 
that all are invited and welcome to experience the transforming power of the gospel. And we dare not change that message today. It was an Old Testament message. It was an Old Testament message. We saw that briefly in our study of Isaiah. It is a New Testament message. It has always been God's method that the gospel was for all. It was not just for the Jew. It is also for the Gentile. So we cannot be selective. We must minister to all. The next thing we notice here, and this one might exempt you from Christian ministry, and that is you must have good sense. You say, well, I don't have good sense, so I'm out. Or at least I know someone who doesn't have good sense, so they're out. But that's not exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking here about wisdom. Paul says in verse 28 that we are to teach and warn with all wisdom. And so even if you say, well, I don't have good sense, I don't have wisdom, the Bible has an answer for that. James says, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and God will give it to him generously. Wisdom, as we saw in a recent series, is the ability to not just have knowledge, but to put that knowledge into practice in life. It is applied knowledge. And wisdom is indispensable if we are to warn and teach every man, as Paul said. The word for warning there is a strong word that refers to settling or setting the mind of someone in proper order. It is correcting their false ideas or even their false way of living. In other words, it is confronting people in their error. And this is a difficult thing to do. We find it to be easy online, but it's difficult to do in person to confront someone with their false beliefs or their false life. But as a community of Christians, it is our business to warn those who are heading in a wrong direction and to warn them of the consequences of that direction if they continue. It is why we have warning signs. Danger ahead. Bridge out. Don't feed the bears. And yet, even though there are warning signs, people sometimes ignore them. But we at least have the responsibility to put the warning signs out there and let them know God's truth. But then he goes on to say, we are not just to warn, we are also to teach. Teaching refers to the ongoing systematic instruction of the Word of God and the doctrines of the Christian faith. And that is what we try to do week after week in all of our services. It is one of the primary goals of the church and therefore should be the goal of all of our ministries. You have a responsibility to teach yourself. You have a responsibility to teach others, your family or a Sunday school class or, or whatever means of contact you have. I remember years ago, a friend of mine who was a pastor noticed that a particular couple in his church had stopped coming. They'd been coming for a while and then they just quit. And so he called them to find out what was going on. And he said this, the husband who he was talking to on the phone said this, in all honesty, he said, it seems that the emphasis in your church is on teaching and spiritual things. And that's just not what we're looking for. And my pastor friend said it was one of the best compliments he'd ever been given. You see, we, we can get fellowship. Now, I'm not saying there's not fellowship in church, but I mean, there are other organizations in which you can get fellowship. There are other organizations which in, through which you can find recreation. And there are other, even other groups in which you can find practical advice for life. 
But there is only one organization that has the mystery of the gospel. That is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And therefore, it is our responsibility to proclaim that. And we must do it in good sense or wisdom. And this is where it comes in. Because we have this dual task of warning and teaching. And all of that must be done with wisdom. There is a lot of warning going on online these days. But it's not in wisdom. I mean, I I go to several websites where it's just attacking other believers. And, And it's not done in wisdom. And therefore, it puts people off. We need wisdom because a word spoken in the wrong way can turn someone away from Christ and his church for years. On the other hand, if we have truth but we fail to warn, then we're not doing anybody any good. So warning and teaching must both be done with wisdom and, of course, in love. And that's why it takes good sense for ministry. Lastly, now so far you might say all of this is very difficult. I don't, I don't want to be willing to suffer, but okay, I know I ought to. I know I ought to be willing to serve, but, but that means I'm going to have to give up some things. I'm going to have to forsake some of my time or whatever. I, I know I need to do these things and share the gospel with others while not being selective and, and doing it all with wisdom. But how can I do all of this? I don't have the strength. And that is why this last point is so important. We must rely on the source. In fact, I don't remember the exact line now, but I noticed it as we were singing the song of the month a moment ago. There was a line in that song that talked about how we, we must rely on him because we cannot do it in our own strength. If we try to minister in our own strength, we will end up discouraged and defeated. Look at the last verse, verse 29. Paul says this, um, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Paul talks about the energy of Christ and that is working in him. Now this does not mean that we don't do anything. This is not let go and let God. Notice the words at the first of that verse. He says, I toil and I'm struggling. Toil is a word that means work that left one so weary that it's as if a person has taken a beating. The ministry is a, is a point of exhaustion. They minister to a point of exhaustion. Struggling is, is a word that means agonizing like in an athletic event or a fight. So the ministry is no place for the lazy. It does take hard work, but it comes with the promise of God's strength. And if we do not rely on the source, we will not minister effectively. Now, when I was at the beach this week, we we had a lamp that we couldn't get to work. And so I looked all over the condo for some light bulbs and I found another light bulb and I replaced the light bulb. Lamp still didn't work. And you know the reason why, right? Because I failed to check whether it was plugged in or not. That's the first thing you're supposed to do. Is it plugged in? And so I looked down at the floor and there's the cord and it's just not plugged in. And as soon as I plugged it in, not only did that light bulb work, but I put that one up and got the other one back out and it worked as well. Because you have to be plugged into the source. Now, you and I might be active and appearing to do many things in the kingdom of God. But if we are not relying on the source, that is, if we are not abiding in Christ and resting in him, we will not have the ministry. Or at least we will not have the joy that we ought to have in ministry. 
So never forget that we must rely on the source. And that source is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now in verse 28, Paul says, and I mentioned this verse when we began this study. He says his goal in all of this is to bring you to maturity. Bring everyone to maturity. Now again, that doesn't mean everyone as in every single person in the world. Nor does it just mean the folks in Colossae as in everyone in the church in Colossae. His goal with every believer he came in contact with was to work in such a way in them or to be used by God in such a way in them that they would grow to maturity. And again, our mission statement, to make and mature believers. That's our desire as a church, and it ought to be the individual desires of every believer here to make and mature believers. So are you involved in Christian ministry? I'm not asking if you want to be, because if you're a Christian, you have that responsibility. Again, in different ways, different types of ministries, but nevertheless involved. You ought to want to get involved in the task of helping other people grow in their relationship with God. So I'm urging all of us this morning to discover the way God has gifted us and to get involved in some kind of Christian ministry. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you this morning for your word and for the example Paul's ministry is to us. And I pray that, that every believer here and those watching online, as we come out of this pandemic, would reassess what we are involved in and make sure that part of our lives are given over to some kind of Christian ministry within the local church. Help us to know how we're gifted. Give us a desire to, to serve. Help us to even rejoice in the times that we suffer for the kingdom of God. And Lord, I pray that we would have that desire to make your word fully known so that we too, along with Paul, could present others mature in Christ Jesus. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, and you respond.